Well, as I said, tonight is our last study of the Lord's Prayer. It's something that Jesus has taught both his disciples and by extension us how to pray. And even not only how to pray, but what to say exactly when we pray. Of course, we've seen this displayed for us in Luke 11 and Matthew 6 is where we've spent most of our time. And in both cases, we're learning how we are ought, we ought to talk to God, specifically God the Father. And we're also learning how we can expect for God to answer our prayers, what the things, what things that we should hope for and what things that we should expect that God will answer. And this prayer is made up, of course, for the final time. Uh, I know I've gone over this every week. Uh, an invocation of God the Father. That is, who are we praying to? What God? We're praying to the Father of Jesus Christ, who is now our Father by faith in him. That's to whom we're praying. And then we list off seven petitions here. Three requests of the Father and his glory. Four of, or four rather, for the family around us, the church community. And it ends tonight with a doxology. That is where we praise him together for who he is and what we know assuredly he will do for us. So we invoke Jesus' Father, who again is now our Father by faith. And we prayed for God to be holy in our eyes, for us to worship him accordingly. We prayed for his kingdom activity to come into this world and for his will as it exists in heaven right now would come to earth. And then we focused our prayer on each other, that not only ourselves, but our whole community would have all the provisions they need, that is our daily bread. And then we prayed, of course, that our sins, as our sins are forgiven, that we'd also in turn be forgiving to one another. And then we pray that we would be protected in times of temptation and trial, maybe when our own hearts lead us astray. And then last week we prayed that the Lord would defend us against the terrible and frightening schemes of evil or the evil one. That is, when someone outside of us tries to lead us astray, that we'd have protection there too. And tonight we conclude with this word of praise, a doxology, a glory saying, quite literally. It's a liturgical, that is a worship summary of all that we hope for as Christians, and we know and believe that we'll be fulfilled one day in Jesus Christ. So tonight we pray for his kingdom, his power, and his glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, you know that there are many great sayings and slogans of the Christian faith. I'm sure in addition to certain Bible verses that are near and dear to your heart, there's certain sayings that you've heard, maybe sayings from parents or grandparents or from pastors or preachers or maybe theologians and, and scholars. I, I think often of Augustine's, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Have you heard that one before? That's a good one. We are restless until we find rest in the Lord Jesus. I think of another one, kind of an um, apologetic one. C.S. Lewis in the 20th century was a, a, a great uh, defender of the Christian faith. And so he said this rather cleverly. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else too. I think it's pretty clever. That's something that sticks in your mind. Well, one of the great sayings of the Protestant Reformation, one of the things that's stuck out to, to many people throughout the ages comes to us from Martin Luther's friend and colleague in Wittenberg, Germany, a man who was a professor and a scholar named Philip Melanchthon. Has anybody heard that name before, Philip Melanchthon? Yeah. Um, he said this, quite simply, to know Christ is to know his benefits. 
To know Christ is to know his benefits. And what he means to say by that is that true knowledge of Christ is not just knowing some bare facts about his person. So we would never say that a person is a Christian simply because they know where Jesus was born or roughly about the time that he was born or even, I mean, you know, everybody in our culture knows some of those things at least, but even the people in our churches to say, you know, Christ because you understand or at least are familiar with the, the doctrine of Christ um, pre-existent state before he was incarnated. That is that the son of God existed before uh, Jesus Christ was born. They're one, uh, one person, yet these two natures, divine and human. That's not what it means to know Jesus Christ. Or even as Wes Hill goes on to say how his divine and human natures are to, uh, quote, in a personal, mysterious union. So we can know all sorts of things about Jesus, facts about his life. We can know all sorts of theologies and doctrines about Jesus. All of that is important, of course, but that is not the same thing as what it means to know Christ. Not really, anyways. Not the way that we would use it. Now, Melanchthon continues. He says, unless you know why Christ put on the flesh and was nailed to the cross, what good will it do you to know merely the history about him? So in other words, unless you can understand why Jesus came and lived and suffered and died and rose and how that applies to you, what you might know about him is doesn't matter. Uh, so often in um, Melanchthon's day, uh, as within our own, uh, there's a lot of people that know a lot about Jesus. Some people out there that are not Christians know Aramaic and, and Greek and Hebrew, and they're probably much more familiar even with the New Testament than we are. Uh, that's been a very common issue in these last three, four hundred years, where there's a lot of scholarship about the Bible, a lot of scholarship about Christianity, but that doesn't mean the same thing as knowing Jesus. Knowing about him is not the same as knowing him. And so when we read in the scriptures the teaching of the apostles and the prophets and what we believe the church has believed for the past 2,000 years, we see that their heart together is really wholly disinterested and just knowing about Jesus without knowing him relationally. So in other words, we're not interested in going out to the streets and the highways and the byways and just telling people facts about Jesus. That's not why, it's not why Christians share about Jesus, just to share our traditions. Well, this is the kind of things we like, and these are our holidays, and this is what we do, this is what we believe, and we think these morals are a good way to live. Our Tim Mackey, the Bible Project, say, so often we get frustrated with our fellow citizens because they don't live by, say, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. They don't live by a kingdom theology. But why would we expect people that don't see Jesus as the king to live according as if this were his kingdom. And so in order to even make sense of what the scriptures are about and the importance of these doctrines and why we meet together to worship, we need to know that Jesus is the king. That's the first. We got to get the cart before the horse or the horse before the cart on that one. And so this reminds me of John's gospel at the very end. I think it's in chapter 20. 
John has given us up until this point seven signs that point us to the fact that Jesus is divine, that he truly is the son of God. And John, more than any of the other gospel writers, takes the most time during Passion Week, during Holy Week, to give us an exact description of what happens to Jesus during those days. But at the very end of his gospel, John says this, kind of a, you know, he breaks out of uh, the narrative to step aside as a narrator and say this. He, he writes in, in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the goal of John's gospel, not to give us uh, the, the personal biography of Jesus as an interesting historical character, but to assure us that whoever this Jesus is, he is the Messiah and the son of God, and we should believe in him. And by believing in him, it's not that we just know about him, but we might have life in him and his name. And so similarly, the reformers were worried in their own day, as we maybe should be in our day, about people that take a kind of cold and scientific approach to knowing Christ. See, in his, uh, in the, in the emerging enlightenment era and, um, and as, as modernism as a concept was burgeoning even 400 years ago, um, this was becoming very popular. Again, where uh, theology was just a, an interest. It was like, uh, you know, it was almost a hobby. It had no necessarily import on the moral life, on your spiritual foundation. And we see that present danger in our own day. In fact, I think that's an ever-present danger in any era of Christianity, where the faith becomes so part of the fabric of our society that we mistake the society for which we live for the kingdom of God. We mistake the traditions and beliefs we have as human beings and a citizen of citizens of whatever place that we might be a part of as what it means to be a Christian. So, for instance, when the gospel to us just becomes a thing that grandmama and granddaddy used to do and we we like that church because they had good music and, and the gospel loses its radical, scandalous power where we, we give of ourselves wholly over to Christ and we relinquish any sort of grudges and, and, and personal claims that we have on anybody else and we become forgiving and we love our enemies. When that power takes hold, that's a very different thing than the kind of cultural Christianity we see in the Bible Belt. Let me give you an example of this that I saw this very week um, in our culture here in, in not only the United States or in the Southeast, but here in Georgia. Now, this is an unnamed gubernatorial candidate for Georgia, um, but this is a person that's running for office currently, and they were at a town hall meeting recently, and this is what they said the mission of Jesus was. Well, I don't, rem- I don't know how they got here from this question. They said, Jesus, this is what Jesus wants of the world. This is his, this is his mission. Jesus sent Europeans to North America in order to fight Native Americans and to establish the First Amendment. That's what they said the the mission of Jesus was. And folks, let me just tell you, you'll hear stuff like that all the time in our world. 
And you can just chalk that up as nonsense. Not only nonsense, but blasphemous nonsense. Because Jesus doesn't exist to prop up our governments or our identities or our way of life. That's the wrong way to look at that. That's become very common, especially here in the Bible Belt, where we use Jesus, we use the gospel as a weapon to build our own ideal empires, so to speak. I think this reflects a deeply twisted thinking that's taken root here, uh, especially in the southeast, I think, where God exists, again, solely to, to prop up whatever our idols may be. But here's the radical truth of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus is not a puppet to cheerlead anybody. He's not here to cheerlead America or China or Russia or the European Union or India or NATO or the UN or anybody else. He didn't come to establish the divine right of kings in Europe or get the Magna Carta signed. He didn't come to empower the age of exploration or to enshrine the writing of the Constitution, no matter what John Voigt thinks. (laughs) He didn't come to give us the Enlightenment or to teach us manifest destiny, or to give us the industrial age, or to help us win the space race, or the Cold War, or anything else that our little empires do. Jesus did not come to establish our kingdom, our power, or our glory. You can say that, but I want to make sure that's clear. I'm not just criticizing our culture. That's true for every culture throughout time and space. I know it's easy for us sometimes here living it always seems like we're so critical of our culture and our society and of course because we live here it affects us the most if we were living in india maybe we'd be spending more time thinking about the things that they get wrong if we were living in china that's what we'd be dealing with if we lived here 300 years ago we'd be dealing with talking about king george and george washington but in our day and age The reminder that we need so clearly as Christians is that Jesus is the King of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And unlike our empires, his kingdom will have no end. That's the kingdom towards which we need to be oriented. Now, to be oriented towards God's kingdom and his glory and his power does mean that we are good citizens of wherever we live. We pray for the people that we don't like that are in power over us. Not that they would always succeed in their schemes, but that God would be merciful and gracious to them. And we try to be good citizens. We try to strive to live quiet and peaceable lives, to not be hell raisers, to not be uh, radicals, to not um, spend all of our energy constantly fighting and bickering with the, the grand schemes of the world. But we need to remember that one day all the kings of the earth with all the peoples of the earth and all the cultures of the earth will come to him and bow down and confess that he alone is Lord. That's where history is headed, whether we agree to it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we consent to that or not, that's where history is going. And this is who the victor will be. And it's this Jesus right now who is teaching us to pray these words. We can't forget that. The words we are praying are taught to us by that Jesus. But at the same time, while he is also king, 
Well, he is, well, he is king, rather. We see that he is also compassionate. That he's gentle and lowly in heart, as we've been discussing these past six months in our Wednesday night prayer services. So for us to pray the Lord's Prayer in earnest, one must know that this Jesus who teaches us to pray and by whom we are praying, we must, we must really know him, not know about him, but really know who he is, really know his heart, really believe that he is the Son of God, the Messiah. Because we can pray the Lord's Prayer until we're blue in the face, but until we see that this prayer is given to us by Jesus, and this prayer points us towards Jesus and his kingdom and his power and his glory, this prayer will never matter a hill of beans to any of us. Until we see and know this Jesus, see how he's given it to us, and pray it in earnest knowing that it's from him and for him and to him that this prayer exists and why we pray it. And it's to this Jesus that Melanchthon stressed um, can be rightly known when we might hear a preacher say aloud in church, Almighty God in his mercy has given us his son to die for you and for his sake forgives you all of your sins. So the beautiful thing is that not only is Jesus this powerful king, the creator and ruler of the universe, but he's one that cares deeply for lost and broken and sinful people like us. And he wants us to be a part of his kingdom. He wants us to be restored. He wants us to be forgiven. He wants us to be reconciled and healed. And see, when we really know this Christ, not only as the glorious king, not to be trifled with, but when we know him as the compassionate savior, we know that we can pray this, not only um, truthfully or earnestly, but even eagerly, knowing that we're praying to, to a God who embraces us, even as we are right now. So when we trust in Christ in this sense, by faith, we really do know him. When this is the Jesus that we know and have a relationship with, we see that he is our salvation. And these words can be a words of assurance and comfort to us, when uh, when we don't have what we need, when we pray, give us our daily bread, we can know that this God who is sovereign and ruler over all can provide us with daily bread. When we ask for protection from the evil of the world, we know that he's uh, vastly invested in protecting us from evil. When we ask for his kingdom to come and transform this world, we can know that he is wanting to do that and is going to bring that about to fruition. And West Hill reminds us that in our day, we need to be careful in praying this because we, while we are uh, prone to error, just as any generation is, probably more than ever, we tend to focus on not knowing Christ, um, but knowing his benefits. That's probably the temptation in the evangelical church in America today. Not really to know Christ, but to know his benefits. And so, so often we'll hear TV preachers, radio preachers, uh, the American gospel will be, we'll come to Jesus so you can get this, or you can have this. Come to Jesus so you can have a clean conscience. Come to Jesus so you can get a restored marriage. Come to Jesus so you can have a renewed and inspired work ethic. Come to Jesus so you can have a reconciled community. Come to Jesus for the promise of justice. Come to Jesus for the hope that this creation will be healed. 
And while all that's good and true, we tend to look, we tend to lose focus rather on the aim of knowing Christ's benefits, which is to know Christ. That's why we come to Jesus, to know him. Now we're thankful for those benefits, but those benefits don't mean anything unless we know the benefactor who gives them. So we, we pray this prayer, ultimately, as the old hymn puts it, so that we might be lost in wonder, love, and praise of our Lord Jesus. Yes, we're all looking forward to the pearly gates and the golden streets and the resurrected bodies, however that will work out, however that God brings that to fruition. All that will be lovely. But the point we get of this heavenly imagery, even in the book of Revelation, is to help us see that it's God that ultimately we as Christians want. He will be our eternal delight, not the mansions and glory, not the fresh young bodies. It will be God and his glory and his fellowship and presence that will give us the ultimate joy that we look for here on earth. Theologian Joseph Ratzinger, maybe uh, better known to us as Benedict XVI, asked a good question in his first book and a trilogy about Jesus. He said, what did Jesus actually bring? When Jesus came, what did he bring? If not world peace, we look around, we don't see the world at peace. If not universal prosperity, I don't think anybody in this room feels super rich or prosperous. What did Jesus bring if not a better world? We look at the state of our world today and feel like a lot of us feel this is worse than it's ever been. So what has he brought? I think that's a good question, isn't it? That's a good question for us to understand as Christians. What did Jesus actually bring to earth when he came down from heaven? Because the world from our perspective is still broken. Nations are still at war. Communities are still poor. Individuals are still sick. And like we discussed last week, on top of all that, we have the power of hell and the devil on our tail at all times, trying to cause us to suffer and to to disobey. So are we to conclude then that because we can't see those benefits, that they are somehow not real, are we to conclude that Jesus has failed to bring something to earth? Absolutely not. Ratzinger would have us know, and he answers the, the, the question that he poses. What has Jesus brought, he asked? The answer is very simple. Jesus has brought God himself. When Jesus came, that's what he brought. He brought the presence of God back to the human being. All of Jesus' life on earth, his birth, his ministry, his suffering, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension, all of it, including his teaching of this prayer to us, all of it was oriented towards one goal. And that was bringing human beings back into a restored relationship with God so that they could behold God's glory forever. We can as Christians, look forward to the future because while we sit here in the in the, the squalid darkness of our age, we know that coming is uh, being bathed in his radiant light, reflecting his worthiness back to him and praise and adoration and joy and elation and peace forevermore. And I love how Hill summarizes this, this last line, this doxology. He says this, 
It's God in himself who pervades the final lines of the Lord's prayer. We've been focused on these petitions to uh, for God to help us, for our situation to improve, for protection. But now we need to get back to the core of what this prayer is all about. Not us or our needs, but God and his provision and his love for us. And these last lines return us back to God's might and his majesty, to the centrality of Christ in everything. And so we pray for uh, for this, we, or rather we pray this, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And yes, while we believe that God's kingship will be for our benefit, that inherently our faith in God and being in his presence just naturally will be beneficial to us, will be transfigured and, and loved and, and, and known and forever. I mean, there can't be anything but that. And we believe that his reign will be for our good and our joy. There's something more ultimately happening here. The point of this doxology isn't so much for us to ask for God for more things. So this is not just the, really, this is not the fifth petition we ask for, for his kingdom and his power and his glory. But what it is actually for is for us to realize that God transcends all our human limitations and mortal frustrations and admitting this, relinquishing our own self and our own need and our own identity, admitting this gives him the glory. That's what we need more than anything. Not to just get stuff so we can continue on in this miserable life where our backs ache and our relationships are frayed and we never have enough money in the bank and uh, all the stresses. We don't pray that so that we just get more things to keep going on in this miserable life. We pray and admit these things that we are not God and we could never be, that we are not our own saviors and we could never be, so that we might give God the glory for everything. Christian author and professor Sarah Rudin says it this way. She says, we can expect to be saved from the devil because of this deity whom we've invoked already. Because we pray to God and we know his character, we can expect that he will deliver us. But now at the end of the Lord's Prayer, there is more that we can see of this deity. He not only has a kingdom, but power and glory as well. God is not just an entity coming into manifestation. He's not just a person invisible in the sky, but he is with he is one with a name to be blessed. He's the one with a kingdom to arrive. He's the one with a will to be an enact, be enacted. His kingdom, his power, and his glory simply are both now and through eternity. What she's saying is that we're not asking God to, to manifest or do something or to, to, to bring something into reality that's not true already. God's kingdom and his power and his glory are a part of God himself. And those things are inevitable. And so this final line is meant, I think, to stir up in us the realization that there is coming a time when we will no longer have the need to ask God for bread. We'll no longer have the need to ask him to absolve us from our sins. We'll no longer have the need to ask him to rescue us from trial or from evil because God's kingdom, his power, his glory 
are inevitable because God himself is inevitable too. And in him inevitably, we will find his love and his grace made known to us through his kingdom, his power, and his glory. And all of our tears will be wiped away. Death will finally be defeated. The earth and its people will finally be at peace with one another and with nature, and they will thrive. And when that time comes, the words of the old hymn, Jesus, I, my cross have taken, will be fulfilled. That is, hope shall change to glad fruition. Hope won't just be something that we cling to and waiting for it to blossom, but it will come to fruition. And faith to sight and prayer to praise. Won't that be a glorious thing when we don't have to believe because we just experienced it? When we don't have to pray because we're just living it? That's what we're looking forward to. One day, all of these petitions to the Father and about our spiritual family, one day all these petitions won't be necessary. We'll never have to pray this prayer again because we'll be living it out in reality. Every second, God will be answering it anew for us for all eternity because that future for which we pray and hope will be the thing that we just exist in. It will be the de facto state of our life. We will be entirely satisfied in body and soul and who God is forever. We'll never have a pain or an ache or a stray thought or anything else that distracts us from the joy that it is to know God and be in fellowship with him. And all that will be left for us to do is not to pray, but to enjoy the praise, to not worry about anything else, but to just to love worshiping him and to enjoy his benevolent reign and to rejoice in the power that he's achieved and to see his glory. Not see it in a metaphorical sense, but see it visually. Whatever God's glory is bouncing off of the retinas and reality, that will be real to us. And so this prayer closes with the, the only way that we could close everything we've heard in this prayer and for this line with a, with a let it be so, or as we translate it, or rather don't translate it, amen. When we say amen, we're saying, yes, Lord, let it be so. And so I'll say this. We also pray the name of our own church and its meaning, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, let it be so. Let all of these things that we've been hoping and striving for don't delay any longer and bring it from our future into our now. Well, as we close out this evening, I just want to give us this... uh, Final sonnet to, to reflect on. I've been going through these sonnets with us for this past, uh, uh, past nine weeks that Pastor Malcolm Guy writes about each line of the Lord's Prayer. And so in this sonnet, he gets to this last line about the kingdom and the power and the glory, and he, and he, and he poses a question, essentially. Can we really trust God? Can we really believe that this is true for us? Can we really believe that God's kingdom and his power and his glory will 
are and will be good news for us in the future. And so he addresses that in his sonnet. He says this, the kingdom and the power and the glory, the very thing we want, uh, we all want for ourselves. But we want to be the hero of the story and leave the others on their dusty shelves. How subtly we seek to keep the kingdom and how brutally we hold on to power. Our glory always means another's thraldom. But still we strut and fret over one little hour. What might it mean to let that go forever? To die to all that desperate desire and to give the glory wholly to another. To throw all we hold into his holy fire. A wrenching loss but then sudden freedom and given glories and his hidden kingdom. Amen. Well, let's all together for the last time pray this prayer that the Lord Jesus has so taught us to be bold to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, amen and amen.